we're still in a time where people don't necessarily trust cannabis products. So if there's not just one chocolate bar, but two, three, four, or five, there's gummies, mints, gum, you name it, then when the consumer walks in the store, they see something for them. And that's great, right? That brings more trust to not just the edibles category, but the whole cannabis industry. So yeah. Welcome to the catch-up. Introducing your hosts. Eli Aruth. Editor. And... Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously. Of the craziest, most bestest, news-breaking, food-porn-peddling, viral website on the dot-coms. It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy! There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. All right. And welcome to the catch up. Catch up, listeners. We have a very special guest this week. As the co founder of the most prominent edible brand out there, Mm -hmm. if you're into edibles, there is a good chance that you've tried Kiva Confections. Mm. Whether. It's gummy form and mm-hmm. Camino. I love it. Chocolate with Kiva bars or it. even mints, coffee beans, blueberries, Petra, terabytes, all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. And in 2018, they will sell nearly 1 million cannabis chocolate bars across 550 dis- dispensaries in six states. That's wild. That's, that's wild. crazy. That's, that's Hershey stuff. That's crazy. Christy Noblick Palmer, thank you for joining the podcast and welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, how was that intro? I always have to ask. Did you like the intro <laughs> it was, or was it, was it whatever? It was off the chain. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Jeff's going to listen we, back. That's the most, that's the most <laughs> nerve-wracking part, at least for me. I don't know about Eli. Eli's and I nerves, I feel, they ebb and flow for different situations. There are things that I think you're really comfortable with talking about and it kind of ebbs and it's fine. There are things for me too, but for intros, especially because well, we do the intro in front of the guests, which is yeah, funny. Like yeah. most people do it like by themselves, so they can get oh. all the facts right. And we like don't mind if you want to correct us. Did you maybe sell like a hundred million? Bars? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think uh, we only sold a hundred bars. Actually, got a little off. <laughs> well, that's the end of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, it was close to a million this year, right? Yeah, yeah. That's I know. That's crazy. an insane number. It's in, it's it's insane that like we got to communicate with a million almost a million people. That's that's so weird. Yeah. A hundred a million people felt a product that you created. Yeah. That, this year. This year. This year. That's this year just alone. This year. Yeah, I don't want to devalue it. Uh I'd love to just go I don't we don't have to do a total origin story, but how when did Kiva get founded and how did you ever expect to be and a million bars sold? Like, or, insane. or even before then, what got you interested in edibles? Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously edibles and, and cannabis and everything is having a moment now, and we'll, we'll get into that. But I'm curious about your story, even pre-Kiva and then into Kiva, uh, about what drew you to this part of the industry. Yeah, totally. Um, so... 
Yeah, back to the beginning. Um, so, <laughs> Settle in, get comfortable. So my uh, my husband and I, well, he wasn't my husband at the time, but he is now, um, started Kiva in our home kitchen in 2010 um, in the house I grew up in in San Leandro, California, part of the East Bay area. And so, um, but how we got into cannabis started about two years ago when we got in as cultivation uh, with a cultivation so we started that in our backyard um, again house I grew up in Um, and so we started cultivating but um, that wasn't the real opportunity right we were going into the stores with our clones so we we weren't great at cultivating so like the first harvest that we grew was like brown like you know like (laughs) like this wood table was that color right so um we decided we weren't really like harvesters that maybe we were um cloners so we could like cut little cuttings off the plants and reroute them um and sell those into the dispensaries so that got us into the stores and then that got us exposed to what was on the shelves and you could see what was on the shelves in terms of edibles needed so much. There was so much opportunity there. And there there really wasn't anything that we would buy ourselves, right? There was a brownie, saran wrap, Avery label with 10X. Yeah. And you're like, I'm not a 10Xer. I'm not even sure if I'm a 1Xer. <laughs> so, and I don't even know what that means. I, like, yeah. what is 10X? 10X what? 10x what i know which is scary that's like you know that's like a a, yeah i'm not into that um so that's where we saw the opportunity was was in edibles um and so scott actually he's he's like he's the brains behind the company i like to say like he's a genius um he comes to me and he's like yeah i think i think we should make edibles and on, at first, I wasn't on board. I was like, no, that's not, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to go in in a tie-dyed skirt and get dreadlocks and, like, pedal brownies. Like, I don't sure. think that's my future. Um, and luckily, he didn't listen. And he went on <laughs> developing what would become Kiva. Um, so he kind of locked himself away and, and Googled and researched, um, how to make chocolate, deciding that that was really the, um, the proper medium as well. So, um, yeah, nine months later, Kiva was born. Wait, that's crazy. So you said you were cultivating in your backyard. Um, why? Like, like, (laughs) I, I don't understand. Did you smoke a lot of weed? Yeah. Okay. So going back a little further. So, um, yeah, I grew up around cannabis, um, like high school boyfriends that I had, like sold it around, (laughs) (laughs) around town. So, um, yeah, I was, um, in the industry, I guess you could say, um, in the Bay area. (laughs) Um, and so it was always just like very much acceptable in my family and, um, like my parents weren't opposed to it. My dad's a, cannabis connoisseur. And so um, it wasn't a taboo subject in my life. So then um, when Scott and I met in photography school, this is in like 2005. um, Then when we moved home back to the Bay Area, we went to school in Santa Barbara, moved back home to the Bay Area, and um, we're trying to start photography businesses in 2007 when the economy is like, Mm. right? Just totally tanking. So to make ends meet... 
Scott was like, we should start a garden cultivation, right? We should start a backyard grow. So we picked up the Ed Rosenthal Grow Bible, which was like the book of the time. And he sold me on this concept that like two harvests, we're going to buy a yacht and we're going to sail around the world. And I'm like, I'm in. The ball right? and drug dealing couple. Like that. Yeah. That, that was the dream. Yep. Your future husband was peddling you. Yeah. Okay. He's like, gonna take two harvests that's like two years right and i mean like we'll we'll be good we'll be set we'll be sailing around the world and um i haven't sailed around the world yet Mm -hmm. but we're still uh pursuing that dream (laughs) (laughs) so it sounds it sounds like there was maybe limited opportunity in the traditional corporate job realm starting a business realm in 2007, 2008, which we're all aware was probably devastating to start anything. And kind of out of that, out of the ashes of that situation was, hey, this is something that we can do and make ends meet. And it and it's turned into, at least so far, a, a full company career and life-changing event. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And when we started Kiva, like there, I like to joke, like the we were, you, you couldn't go down from where we were, right? Like we didn't own home. We didn't own car. We had one car between the two of us. Like we didn't have jobs. It was like, okay, well, kind of feel like eating breakfast in the morning. So perhaps we should look at another way to make money. Like just to get us, because we have to wake up in the morning and like, you know, continue to live. Yeah. And so we need to fund our living with something else. So yeah, it just kind of was born out of necessity. And then did you or your husband have an interest in confections? Or was is this company born out of opportunity? And because you mentioned the Google search already. You mentioned that he deep dove into the internet. And I know there's a chocolatier story somewhere in Ohio as well, but... Is this an opportunity story? Like, just grab the bull by the horns and we're going to figure it out our way to becoming, at the very least, from what I know, the top edible brand in California and beyond. People who don't smoke or eat edibles know your brand. Like, everyone in the office was like, oh, shit, we know Kiva. They're coming here. Like, they had, they had tons of questions. And so, like, for me, you you guys are the, the mainstream gateway. What's funny is... You I were my gateway. I Yay! only you absolutely so, were. <laughs> I know Kiva from the bars. Like that's what I knew. And then someone gifted me mints, and I had no idea they were your brand mints. Uh, what are they called? Petra mints. Mm-hmm. And so they were two and a half milligrams. And for people at home who don't know, two and a half milligrams is like a perfect little amount of of weed. It's like really good if you've never consumed any sort of edible before. And I was like, I go upstairs because Jeff doesn't smoke or do any of that he just barely drinks and i was like this is perfect for jeff like take the edge off a little bit he's not gonna trip out because it's two and a half and if he wants to go more later he knows what a good baseline is and that's never been available in edibles before because everyone if you've had like a bad trip it's probably because you had a brownie back in the day that like all the weed like sifted to one side of the tray and you fucking had that piece of the crust (laughs) yeah so i run upstairs i give the weed to jeff uh, he, it's a mint, like no bigger than the size of a Tic Tac. And Jeff's like, I mean, how bad could this one pill be? As long as it's not like ecstasy, like we're good. <laughs> <laughs> and I come back, I check on Jeff a couple hours later and he's just smooth sailing at a stand up desk, not talking to anyone. 
but in the but like good. Yeah. And I'm like, Jeff, how are you feeling? Yeah. He's like, good, man. Good. And I was like, shit. Surprisingly good because the context for me, again, which Eli alluded to, is before that point, I had never, to use a George Bush-ism, I've never, I never inhaled. <laughs> even if I was past a joint, I had, didn't even know how. Because I say I did the same thing in that high school college. Is even if someone hand me a cigarette, like I'd smoke it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. nothing was hitting the lungs at all. So yeah. at that point, I you know I felt like such a noob in cannabis that you would also wouldn't pursue it because you didn't know if you were gonna look really stupid. So it was just one of those things where I didn't pursue it, and then it kind of pursued me through these mints, and then through those mints, I. F- found the blueberries Mm. and after blueberries i was just more open to different things so and unbeknownst to me and the blueberries were terabytes by the way but unbeknownst to me i i didn't know kiva was going to be responsible i well i didn't know kiva was the umbrella brand of those sub brands which is also an amazing sub brand culture that i want to talk about but then once i once i learned that and we the dots connected even before you were on the podcast. I was like, "Holy crap!" There's like all the edibles There's, a, you there's name. a brand out there that has infiltrated a non-weed connoisseur, and part of the reason I think I was so open to it was the strength of branding. I mean, this it just felt like something that you would pick up from a Sprouts, and it felt like something. Mm-hmm. That wasn't in, yeah, a Ziploc bag marked 10X. That would have scared the shit out of me. <laughs> so, Christy, you yeah. sucked at growing weed. Um, uh, this was uh, two, I mean. Yeah, that's like 2009. 2009. Your husband sucked at growing weed. Mm-hmm. Um, you said, but so you were still, were you still uh, providing product for dispensaries at the time? Yes. So clones. What's a clone? So, yeah. So a clone is like a little clipping off of a plant and you take that and you reroute it okay. into its own plant. So okay. it's a fairly simple like process, but um, it's, it's common in like agriculture. So you would sell that? Yes. Okay. And so that, how do you even start selling that? You're like, all right. Great question. I guess you take your, your eight best clones (laughs) down (laughs) in a little tray, um, in a cardboard box to Harborside (laughs) in Oakland, which Harborside, if you don't know, is like the dispensary in the world, which is like 10 minutes from my house. So yeah. So I walk into Harborside and Jeremy at the time is like the top dog buyer and I don't know why but he bought my eight clones that were probably like half dead by the time I got there and that put me on the map right I was like if this is out there what else could I be doing (laughs) right like amazing so that just gave us the confidence to keep doing it was it called kiva at that point how are you branding your eight you're just like this is my eight clone brand yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah they were not branded at all at that point Uh um so i guess we were standing out based on personality (laughs) i don't know (laughs) your smile Um, you walk in all right yeah exactly so um but we uh eventually did try to brand our clones um but like how do you brand a plant Right. right. Like I can't think of any plant brands right now, like at Home Depot. 
Um, so it's hard to stand out with a plant. And then who are you appealing to? People who want to grow. Like, I don't, I don't want to grow. Most consumers don't want to grow, right? Yeah. They just want to eat cannabis. They don't want to farm it. Yeah. So um, there's just so many more people to appeal to with a product rather than a plant. I think so many of our origin stories have people physically and actually knocking on doors at some point yeah. early on. And, and I think the majority of our audience is really flabbergasted by that. And I'm not entirely sure why. And maybe that's because both you, Eli, and I, we've knocked on doors of our own. But well, that's the bottom line. I think it's just encouraging it, yeah. to, hey, this was as simple as I went to somewhere that sold something. And I'm assuming this is... Not with an email appointment and a calendar invite. It's, I brought a tray of clones to this dispensary, met this guy, Jeremy, and he bought some. So you have to kind of make your own destiny sometimes. It's not, you know, don't let the anxiety part of our brain stop you from doing, actually doing something, right? It's, I don't have a brand or I don't have this or that. Because here's the story of Christy with one of the strongest brands in cannabis going to a dispensary without a brand. Like, so it wasn't like you stayed at home and like waited until the perfect branding came through and perfect package. You walked with a tray of weed, which like, I don't know. I'm sorry. Which is just so amazing. Just the the mental visual that we get, right? Because this is in contrast for the people that don't know Kiva. If you've seen... The brand new line of Camino gummies, which is six California flavors inspired by very specific things in very specific color waves with perfect fonts and textures and packaging. Shout out to the habanero pineapple gummy. Oh, my goodness. So that's where we've come, right? (laughs) Is going from the nameless tray to the brand new six skew line of of amazing gummies it's that's pretty amazing well thanks i mean like i said i just wanted to eat breakfast the next day (laughs) what's the motivation (laughs) so so you again um you get bought by this store they they purchase a, a bit of the clone and is it at that time you look around the store and you're like well the packages in here on the edible products like ugh ugh yeah i hate them like they look gross and there's no confidence. There's you have no confidence in it, and so you look at, and that's where the opportunity of both you and your husband you see, you see a chance for lightning in the bottle. Yeah, totally. And and you could so Harborside is just such a great um, place to bring up because you could sit outside of Harborside and you could just watch the people coming in. Right there were suits and ties. There were moms. There were like you know 18 year olds there were grandmas like there was every walk of life coming into the store it was the same thing you would see like outside of starbucks or Mm. a target and what are people who shop at target or starbucks used to seeing brands and consistency right like they have iPhones like that they're used to normal products that do the same thing every single time and there was basically none of that in the dispensaries at that time how important was it to be in oakland specifically at that time because 
in previous podcasts with the founders of TerraTech and Bloom, um, they mentioned, I can't remember what the phrase was, that, but they mentioned like a grower triangle of some sorts that was like alluding to, to the Bay Area. And I we've thrown events in Oakland. I mean, but this was recently, but there's an established cannabis culture in Oakland that even for the non-cannabis enthusiasts like myself, which even though I'm becoming one, I was very aware of that cannabis culture in Oakland. Do you think Kiva exists if you were trying to sell cultures like in any other place in America or is it part of that place and that times has spurned some of the best brands in cannabis? Yeah. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So, like, my husband's from San Diego. So, had mm. we moved to San Diego instead of Ooh. the Bay Area, like, no, it's it's just too conservative in other parts of the state, other parts of the country. So, yeah, definitely being in Oakland was big. There were licensed, or let's see, there were permitted dispensaries in Oakland at that time. So Oakland had been like, hey guys, come on in. You know, we don't have a, I, I, maybe, I guess they were permitted. The The city knew they were there. So the city was collecting taxes from them and not actively trying to shut them down. So that's big. That's a real big uh, issue because when I, when I was working in downtown Long Beach in 2010, there were a number of dispensaries that kind of opened up within the vicinity that, I mean, they'd get raided every other week. And I'm talking camera footage of kicking door down, police, grab your shit, insult you on the way out, see you next week if you're still open type stuff. That media wave is scary as a consumer. Like, if especially like you're used to getting weed one from like the dude that you have a phone number that you met at a party. And then the next step is like, oh, there are dispensaries. We're here in California. So we've had dispensaries for a minute. But when you see these like newspaper articles and video footage of like dispensaries getting raided, you feel like you're committing a crime when you're inside a dispensary. Like pre-Jan this year, like every time I went in and this is a true story. Like I went to a dispensary, completely legal, filled out all the paperwork that I needed. And then a week later, that dispensary was raided to the ground. And I'm like, fuck, am I like, did they take my paperwork? Like, am I in some shit for even shopping there? And so that culture, I can see why there is a stigma towards it right now. Um, Like as if it wasn't there for years, but like it's not helpful seeing that stuff in news. Like it's not helpful seeing dispensaries get raided. The word dispensary is something I want to talk about later, too, because it's just like I feel like we're branding people in this room like dispensary is tough that's more like a fan question we can get to later too is like are we using the proper labels right now and then you probably know all the, the legalities of what you can say and what you can't say mm-hmm. but before we go down that road i'm still okay we're we're in oakland we're in oakland and it sounds like it's a place that at least from a mu- municipality level is more accepting than maybe anywhere else mm-hmm. because at that time it's not it's not state legal it's not county legal right so that's something where a city kind of had to take that risk and say yeah we're gonna we're gonna be we're gonna permit this on some level to allow for a, brands to have consistency dispensaries to have consistency and remind me of the 
uh, dispensary that you keep mentioning. Harborside. Harborside, because it sounds like they've been a staple for a, for a very long time. Totally. They're like pioneers. Like they've laid the foundation for the cannabis industry to, to fall in line. Yeah, they're huge. And their their founder, Steve D'Angelo, is like a industry leader and advocate and really outspoken and well-spoken. And um, yeah, they've really uh, stuck their necks out for everybody else. Can you walk me through, um, once you see the store, you get inspired to potentially create edibles. What are the first edibles look like? Where does the name Kiva come from? All that stuff. What's that, that little origin right there? Yeah. Um, so the first the first product is actually one that we still have. So the first product um, was supposed to be the Kiva milk chocolate bar, uh-huh. um, 60 milligrams of THC. And so we ordered the chocolate. We went through like a process of tasting all these different chocolates and like we had zero money when we started, right? And so we could get like chocolate... Um, like we could order that like this week or we could wait to get the good stuff, but that was going to take a few more weeks of selling clones and doing photography Mm. jobs to be able to afford it. But like from the get go, we were like, it's got to be the best chocolate possible. So that took us a little while before we could order it. So then it shipped and it arrived and we started making bars we made our first batch and we, um, we tried the product and we went, Oh, is this dark chocolate? It is is dark chocolate so they actually sent us the wrong chocolate we had no idea we made bars with it so then we decided well let's launch with milk and dark (laughs) because we have a batch right here ready to go so those two bars um with the changing of the regulations at the beginning of 2018 they morphed into 100 milligram bars but from our chocolate bar line they um remain our best sellers just Pure milk and pure dark. So, what what is it about that hundred milligram line that is so important? Because that that's a consistent thing now, right? Like, it can't can a single package have more than a hundred milligrams of THC in it? No, it cannot. Nope. So, the hundred milligram cap is something that was set by the state um, as a way to protect consumer safety, make sure that people um, try to mitigate people from eating too much. Gotcha. So, so yeah. you know the worst case, if you down this whole bar, it's going to be 100 milligrams. And it's broken into five milligram serving? Yep, five milligram serving, so 20 pieces. Got you. And is this uh, the 2.5 milligram uh, petriments that you have, is that the lowest dosage you've seen of anything like on the market? There are some like one milligram products that are pretty small. There's a mint that has one milligram in it, um, but two and a half is um, becoming one of those like microdose norms, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that two and a half came because um, we launched the terabytes, which were five milligrams of THC. Yeah. We started with the espresso bean. Then like maybe a year or two later, we came out with the blueberry and um, the Kiva team, we were all out on a like company event. We went to Universal Studios. And so we were like drinking beers and, you know, we're trying edibles. And I'm like, man, you know, I can't have like five milligrams in front of the team where I'm going to like, you know, I got I still have my boss hat on technically. <laughs> so I eat a half a blueberry. And so we're all kind of eating a half a blueberry. And so mint product was in um, 
in uh, development at that time. And we we're trying to come up with, well, what's the right amount for the mints? And we went, let's go two and a half milligrams. It's a half a blueberry. It's just enough to, like you were saying, kind of loosen you up a little bit, right? A little mood enhancer, but it's not too much so that you can't conduct yourself in public. Brilliant. That. If, I, if I'd like to interject real quick, we have a, a question from Justin Oba. He's a listener of ours, and it ties into what you're saying. Uh, the, the, does the saying, quote unquote, don't get high on your own supply apply to today's edible company philosophy? Or is that just thrown out the door in businesses like yours? And like, do you, how do you set like, what, this what is a great question. Yeah, this is, <laughs> shout out to Justin Oba. Thank you for yeah. listening. Um, and we have the guy who's going to kind of talk about that culture amazing yes um no i think that that has been turned upside down and i would say definitely get high on your own supply um that's starting to change i would say that in the past because you can't trust the supply of others um when we were in an unregulated market but now that we're regulated that's starting to change a little bit and you can get high not on your supply but on the supply of others as well because you know now with state regulation that they're trusted and they have to be consistent. Basically. Do you have any judgment at like employees? Like, let's say you're walking through the office and someone in your marketing department just like whips out like a four foot bomb, and you're just like, <laughs> like, do you like? Are you like? Are you like? I'm gonna talk about this in the like review later at the end of the year. Like, I'm just so curious because it's such a fascinating workplace. You're spearheading like such a unique company. And at any other workplace, they would probably just call the cops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we have a no consuming on the job policy as of probably the last like four or five years, and we're okay. just about eight years old. So, um, because it's a liability, mm-hmm. right? You can't have somebody like smokable and then drive the forklift that's an extreme example but you also can't have somebody who's supposed to be in charge of packaging and labeling like every item with a unique barcode if they're also consuming because one number's off and the whole lot is uh, rejected or gets lost in the system or whatever so um, we don't drug test for cannabis obviously (laughs) Um, but and we don't consume like on site but when we do R&D testing for example um, we do like a we use a spittoon so you eat a little bit of it chew it up get the mouthfeel get the flavor and then take like a lukewarm glass of water and then spit and swish with that so that you can stay at work for the rest of the day whoa that's mad professional that's pro tip that's a pro tip (laughs) holy cow here's why I think this is changing because we Christy, we knew you were coming here for the podcast this week, and so we have editorial stand-up meetings where we kind of just talk about what's going on, what's happening within our day, and I was like, hey, I'm going to go out to Bloom, this local dispensary, because I'm going to try out the products of these new seasonal products from Kiva. Does anybody want some? And it was one of those things where it's like I'm now the one of the bosses of this company who's offering cannabis because it's applicable to what we do. It's a no and chef then, in our and, company. That's not the dude and who I'm, would offer I'm it. The, I'm the straight laced guy, so when I'm offering it, I can tell people looked at me and 
Is like this a, a trick? Is this a, a joke? Test. And then they could tell I then wasn't joking, and the hands very slowly started to go. Oh, 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 yeah! Like I, I'll take some peppermint bark, Kiva. Like, and just to watch that play in my head, or not in my head, like in real life, was really like an amazing moment to me because how how many times has that happened? Right in, I mean. We're a small company. We're millen- quote unquote millennial owned. We're so we're a younger generation company, but it still was one of those moments where I was like, "Oh, this is generally accepted." Like from founders on down, especially when it's applicable to our industry, which is food and edibles. Well, I feel like we now need to have a sit down because if Kiva. If the team of Kiva doesn't smoke or consume at work, like, who are we? What example are we setting? <laughs> who are we? I remember one of the first uh, edible editorials I ever did was a couple years back. I forget the brand. Sorry. Um, they they made these honey sticks, um, delicious honey sticks, and they're infused. I remember like 10. It might have been a high dosage, like maybe a little closer to 20, 30. And I popped them open in the morning, didn't tell anyone. Took pictures of my day, went to every meeting, but I was tripping balls. Like again, I don't, I don't. And no, and, well, no one do. Oh uh, yeah, but well, some people do. But that's part of the fun process. Is like once you consume for in your early stages, you're thinking about other people thinking about you consuming. So which is like the fun endless loop your mind goes into. Um, well, let's get back to the chocolate because. We got to get this founding story out. We're close. Yeah, we're close. We <laughs> we're keep close. going on tangents because there's way too many fun things to talk about. But we know that you had saved up and we're trying to get quality from the beginning in your chocolate. I know that there's a visit to Ohio and a chocolatier from the previous articles that I read. Tell us more about the chocolate specific part of your story and, and why I'm the most interested. So I had... I texted you last night. I had the... Oh, wow, this text. Yeah. Pretty wild text stream for me. We'll get to that. But so uh, I got the uh, peppermint bark, which is very, very layered and beautiful mixtures of, I believe, dark and white chocolate. There's like you... The back of it is like has peppermint bits that you can see and feel and taste. And so... I'm. I got this to try a product because I'm trying to do my due diligence before the podcast. Good but, for you, Jeff. But I'm also. But I'm also opening it like, damn, this looks like a, a chocolate bar that I would just crush. I can't and I won't. Oh yeah. But and I will be responsible. But just from the aesthetics, it looks like a legit, high end, chocolate candy bar. And so I'm curious about the origins of your chocolate sourcing and how you incorporate it. Because the taste of it was also, I honestly couldn't tell. I thought, it, it honestly, there's a lot of stuff, even newer stuff that I've had lately that the... You can taste the weed. I taste the weed a little mm-hmm. bit. And mm-hmm. it's fine. I don't mind it yeah. because I know what I'm eating. But on this chocolate bar, I had a smile on my face after I took the, the, the one piece, the five milligrams, mm-hmm. and it's also great because it's laid out in 20 different pieces like you mentioned and it's already in a ziploc and in my freezer to try out later so tell me more about the chocolate because that was amazing to me the taste uh and i'm curious how you got there yeah so um 
from the beginning, we were going to be a high-quality edibles company. Like, we weren't going to throw taste to the wayside because we're a cannabis company, right? We weren't going to make excuses for the taste of our products because they had a functional benefit. Like, that was never part of the strategy. So our chocolate comes from a local Bay Area um, producer that's been around for hundreds of years. They're amazing. So um, we chose the chocolate. We don't make our own chocolate, right? We don't have, like, a grinder and all that stuff. We we source it. So, um, so the chocolate that we have sourced has really nice like vanilla notes a really nice melting point super smooth silky texture and it just marries well with the cannabis right it doesn't it doesn't aim to completely mask the flavor of the chocolate we try to or i'm sorry of the cannabis we try to really enhance the flavors that are going on in there and make it pleasant so that um you some people say that they can detect a little bit of a cannabis flavor but that cannabis flavor that we do have we go for like a buttery roasty toasty Mm. note rather than like hash or, <laughs> or bong water right that's that's not the flavor profile that we're aiming for so um and there's certain flavors like mint like berry that um that just naturally go well with the cannabis flavor we've tried flavors like pomegranate we're like oh yeah we gotta have a pomegranate bar because that's where flavor trends are going and if we don't have pomegranate like you know whatever we have to have it and then you mix pomegranate chocolate and cannabis and you're like oh this not is good gross wow yeah so it's not all flavor trends go well with cannabis and chocolate you really have to roll up your sleeves and find a time to sample all types of different flavors and combinations to find um exactly what's going to work the best Yo, catch up, listeners, your boy Eli. Pardon the interruption. I just want to stop by and give you guys some merch, some Food Beast merch. Uh, Shop.foodbeast.com is littered with dope tees, sweatshirts, handbags, the whole nine, everything. My favorite shirt is that Pizza Slayer shirt. There's the Food Beast Athletics line because, you know, you are an athlete if you're a Food Beast. So uh, I just wanted to quickly tell you guys you can get 36% off anything in the store using code KETCHUPGANG at checkout. Ketchup Gang, this is only for you guys, only for you listeners. I appreciate you guys so, so much. Thank you guys for leaving all the reviews on the iTunes store. I love that. And tagging us in your merch when you get it. 36% off is crazy. We don't put this anywhere else, not on Instagram, nowhere else. You're the only one who knows this because I'm talking right to you. So was the trip to Ohio part of your education toward becoming a chocolate connoisseur? Because you just mentioned multiple tasting notes of chocolate that... What is this I, trip to Ohio, by the way? You Just making it sound sorry, like you... Sorry, I've now mentioned trekked, it three times, you but... Like, sorry, Jeff. You like trekked there on foot? It was... Here's the, here's the information I have, and then I'll let Christy expand. They went to a chocolatier that of a renowned stature... Don't know what the sommelier level of a chocolatier is. I'm assuming it's something like that. The facility that we were they went to was 100 years old. Those are the facts that I have, okay. and I'm curious, Christy, about how what the journey was, there. how that expanded your mind, how early that was, and anything else chocolate. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, so Ohio. So we... Um, 
so this is like 2013. And the reason for going to Ohio was to learn how to pan. And panning is the process that makes the espresso beans and the blueberries, right? It's like the Mm. process of taking a a core or a center, such as a blueberry, and then adding engrossing chocolate onto it. That process is called panning. So in the confections world, panning is an art form. Right. It's it's a combination of science and temperature and technology and chocolate and method and finesse to get the perfect panned item. Right. So it's 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 an art. So um, we had been getting consumer feedback. Right. At this point in time, we only have our chocolate bars in two potencies, 60s, 180s. And people are using this little they're doing with their hands what looks like pieces. Right. We want. We want your bars in a smaller size, like a little square. And so um, Scott, being the engineer that he is, he's like, oh, they don't want squares. They want pieces, right? They want to open up a, a, up an edible, take one piece that's X milligrams. We landed on five milligrams and put the lid back on, job done, right? Like, let's make this easy on our consumers. So... We um, found out where the panning guru guy was, and that was in Ohio. So um, we uh, we pack our bags and we jump on a Southwest flight and we head over to Ohio. And um, you know, we only have one day in which to learn this age-old art form, and so we go to this like um, really old factory, like like you said, a hundred like hundred years old. Like walls are crumbling. It's like an old chocolate facility it's like 90,000 square feet it's huge and there's a million people that work there whatever so we get there and Scott and I we have our notebooks we're gonna meet with the panning guru and um, he has an apprentice and so the apprentice is gonna teach us alongside the guru how to make panned items and we have eight hours so we get there like I don't know nine in the morning and we have till five and we're just gonna we're gonna learn and the apprentice is like hold the phone. You guys think you're going to learn my art form in eight hours? Oh, shit. oh, God. Right? Like, you jerks. Like, who do you think you are? And we're like, well, like, you know, we have to. We only have eight hours. We have to launch. We want to launch this product. We have to do it. We don't have any time. We don't have any, like, we just, we just need to get it done. So we are like, taking down every single note, right? Like, okay, put this there, put this here, this temperature, this humidity, blah, blah, blah. Writing down all of the specs. I mean, taking pictures, taking videos, like collecting as much information as we can. So we learn, we make some like chocolate covered peanuts or something crazy. We go home, we have the equipment and the knowledge, the notes, the pictures, and we just jump in, right? On our own little lab style, um, like little tiny tabletop machines. And so Scott practices, practices, practices a few months. He finally gets it really good. Then he um, scales it up to full-size production equipment, practices, 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 brings in our chocolate guy, like our on-staff chocolatier at the time, brings him in, trains him. He practices, practices. So it's probably like, I don't know, six to nine months maybe of practicing to make this product before it actually launched. We had the guru guy come to our facility to check out our process and fine tune it 
and he looks at our panned items. He's like, you guys made these? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> we did it. So that was super awesome. And then a couple years later, the panning guru guy passed away. No. So like, yeah, maybe two years later, he passed away. So we feel like super honored to have like absorbed the knowledge of Kevin Dolan was his name. Um, and be able to pass that on to all of our Kiva fans. Shout out to Kevin. That's a good story. And I and I feel like again, people don't know the work involved with creating a new product. With is I think part of my next set of questions toward you, Christy, and Kiva. But the the six to nine months of Figuring out even where to go that you might be able to learn something, stepping into a door that you may not be welcome in because of being a newcomer and having to deal with that passive aggressive comment. <laughs> you have to, you cannot learn what I have to teach in eight hours, but doing it anyway, yeah. right? I think that's, I don't know, that's my favorite part of the pod is when someone just says, yeah, we just, we researched it, we went and did it, and we brought it back, and then we practiced a lot. Because that's the reality of getting good at anything, anywhere. There was no secret. I went to this four-hour class and became a panner for chocolate. Well, I just realized that's uh, – the panning makes that perfect, like, like there's no edge to the chocolates. Is yeah. that – because, like, yep. I, in my head, I'm like, just run this through a treadmill of chocolate covering yes. and like but then there's going to be like a flat bottom so like yep. it needs so did yep. you guys have to create or find equipment that would do that yeah so the equipment that we have it's kind of like a cement mixer huh. so the cho the the coffee bean like you said is never sitting on a flat. treadmill yeah. base yeah, yeah. but that <laughs> is a process. <laughs> yeah. that is a process actually it's called enrobing where you put on a treadmill and then you have a chocolate waterfall and you there run that item through the waterfall right but then it has a foot right like a bottom, truffle right? Right? like a truffle, truffle like yeah. sees sees right. that type of equipment they're on that treadmill stuff then you yeah. step it up <laughs> the official term treadmill stuff yeah so yeah so our products are in this constant state of they're moving 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 like in a cement mixer so they're tumbling on each other they're bumping into each other and then it's up to the panner it's super active right he's in there pulling the like basically massaging the batch to get it just right get all the pieces covered exactly as they're supposed to be at what point and to back up a little bit you guys knew you wanted to diversify your product line potentially with something, I'm assuming, like blueberries or, you know, things that required the panning of chocolate. But what what gave you the confidence level to expand outside of the core products that you had, right? Because you guys are bars. I'm, I'm assuming you had equipment for bars. And did those do well out the gate? Like, because we, we didn't talk about you, you made your bars. Um, you had that dark chocolate, milk chocolate mishap early on. And then did you design packaging that you liked that you thought consumers could dig that was better than the crap you saw in stores? And then did you go back to Harborside? Yeah. <laughs> on yeah. a tray or what happened? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so we launched with those 60 milligram bars because we, in our own internal testing, very scientific, our roommates and I, and us, like trying out <laughs> potency levels, um, we were like, yeah, oh, 60 milligrams, that's like 
that's the real deal. So we uh, we went to Harborside with our chocolate bars, and we were like, here you go, Harborside. Why don't you guys buy a million bars? And they were like, well, these are cool, but we want them stronger. And we were like, okay, so like 100 milligrams? And they're like, no, we don't even want them double strength. We want them triple strength. 3X. 3X. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I get where it's coming from. Yeah. yeah, I get it. So then we were like, okay, well, gee, so we thought long and hard, like, is this responsible? Like, can we do this? Is this like, is this what we should do? So we ultimately decided, yes, this is what we should do. So then um, we went back to Harborside and like they are one of the hardest customers to or um, stores to break into as a new brand. So we pitched a tent on the front lawn. No, I mean, not really, but like I basically went in there every week or a few times a week to be like, hey, you know, here we are, here we are, three times the strength, just like you asked. Um, <laughs> and so then finally they ended up picking them up and they've been like, a best customer of ours for since then. That's awesome. So. so they just started flying. People saw the packaging. What what early feedback did you get? I don't know how you like social media or did or they not like the start or did flying? They not sell, because like, that's what I don't want to. Yeah. If there are details there, because you just mentioned you you pitched a tent outside of Harborside to get them in store. What were some of those early struggles to get distributed? But then once you were distributed, was that something where people were really into it because, well, there wasn't else anything else really like it? Yeah, yeah. So distribution um, has been like a really fun sword. I don't want to call it a side business, but it's been like everybody thinks of us as Kiva Confections, the chocolate bars. But in order to get your chocolate bars from your home kitchen to Harborside, you have to put them in the back of your Prius and drive them down there. So that has changed, obviously, with regulation and it's um, grown over the years, but it is the other half of our business. So yeah, the challenges around distribution have been like crazy. So since we started in the Bay Area, we got really good traction in the Bay Area for the first like couple of months. Um, and then we came up with the 180 bars. We got even more traction. That was really good. That helped like meet a, meet a really strong demand in the marketplace. Um, we had pretty good um, account representation in um, the Sacramento area. Maybe like, I don't know, we probably had 20 to 40 accounts selling our products in Sacramento. And then the end of 2011, like I think it was local police or somebody came in and shut down like all of the stores oh, in God. Sacramento, which made up like 30% of our business. Wow. And it was right around the holidays. It was like in October. And so um, to recapture that business, we had to start selling our products in LA, but we weren't really ready. We had like five or seven people on the team and, but that's what we had to do to like save the business. So we, um, I mean, we'd rent a car, I'd pack it up with everything we had in our inventory, drive down to, to LA, pop into all the stores, like say I'd stay at my best friend's house and lived in, in LA and just go to the stores and get in there and pedal chocolate basically to them. Um, and then they'd put in an order. So you'd go in, give them a couple samples, talk to the bud tenders, talk to the buyers. They'd be like, cool. Yeah, we'll take like two cases. You're like, okay, great. Go to your car, take them out. Here you go. $180 per case. You're good. Exchange the money and back in the car, back driving around to the next stores. Then the next week goes by, they're ready to re-up. So 
pack the car up again from Oakland, drive back down. So did that for probably like two months through the holidays. And we finally hired somebody to um, to work the L.A. market and do sales and deliveries down there. So, but yeah, we had like we kept the product in a, um, a air conditioned um, storage unit that was like our distribution facility in LA. So you could do it super, super scrappy at that time, but it was no walk in the park, right? There were tons of no's. Like, no, we already have a chocolate bar. Huh. You go, oh, you have you have one chocolate brand. Like, oh, interesting. Do you know how many chocolate brands there are at Whole Foods? There's about 40. So you have one brand that you're offering your customers yet that's not satisfying all of the needs of every person that walks in here right so you just have to come up with with good rebuttals to all of the no's why do you think they were so hesitant early on like why was there this idea of like one chocolate bar like i understand shelf space ideas but like it's still a chocolate bar versus like you know and is it also to follow up that question did Stores care less about edibles and more about flour early on. Yes. So it was like, oh, great, your chocolate bar. We have a chocolate bar. Tell me more about your strains or something like that. Totally. Yes. And like, I think when we got started, there's like hardly any market data, but from some of our retailers, you could um, you could see that the edibles market was like maybe 7% of total sales. So yeah, if you didn't have an edible on your shelf, like fine, you still had 93% of your revenue that mm. was coming in through mm. flour. But um, but things were becoming more normalized, right? And anybody could get a card for any hangnail or whatever <laughs> your chronic medical condition was at the time. So um, new people, remember the, the Harborside crowd was suits and ties and grandmas and moms, and it was everybody was starting to come into the stores. So people were looking for other ways than just smoking, um, and even vape pens weren't huge at that time, right? This is like a world pre-vape pen. So the only other option to smoking was edibles, but edibles had a bad reputation of that brownie batch, right? That, yeah. you know, you're on the couch for five days after you eat your brownies. How, because and you mentioned distribution is a huge part of your business and that's kind of a through line on, it kind of in any industry, like alcohol, that's an issue too. Of just like, you can't mail alcohol, so you obviously can't mail. That's probably you're not just mailing it down to Southern California. Like you can't do that. How dangerous is any of that stuff? Like when I'm imagining you in like a car. You said you in a Prius, and you have basically gold with you. And I don't know. Are there any like safety precautions you would take in in terms of that? And like I think that's fascinating, especially because in the last podcast that we were with the Bloom founders is dispensaries were places for robberies to happen because suppliers would go in with backpacks full of stuff and leave with backpacks full of cash or whatever the situation was as a chocolatier trying to distribute (laughs) your product in los angeles yeah that sounds like it could be pretty heavy at times yeah um Security has always been an issue, and I think it's been, um, it is becoming more of an issue as the industry is maturing because um, back then, like, I mean, I would walk in with, with a box and come out with a purse. So, like, I don't think I was ever, I never felt, I was never, I've, I'm not like your typical target that somebody's going to rob on the street, right? Like, sure. I'm not that. But as the industry grows, um, 
parts of it are maturing, such as the the consumer base. So we're seeing more volumes. We're seeing more people come into the stores. Orders are getting larger. But what's not maturing with the industry is banking right. and ways to store that cash. So yeah, you are getting a driver going in and you have to get the money out of the store Normally, if you're in the liquor business, food business, any other business, that would happen electronically. So, like, you wouldn't be handling any cash. But we haven't quite caught up to that yet. So um, we have to really take security very seriously because it, it is a problem. It's it's a problem that affects every distributor, every brand, and every retail dispensary because it's, you know, it, it's a valid and, and ongoing concern. And because it's a concern and because it's a problem that has to affect your costs because you have to take in consideration of potential losses or more security or, you know, from the podcast that I've been listening to armed guard pickup and things of that nature, because some of these cash drops are huge or for whatever reason. And I think that actually goes into one of the questions that we had coming from one of our listeners who's who's curiously asking about price and and so I'm I'm wondering if that's what are the the things that we don't think about as average consumers like the lack of banking what that does to your product and why you have to charge what you charge in comparison to you know again you can read off the reader sure, yeah uh listener Taylor Corner new listener uh he's mentioning and again, this is uh, this is a perfect chance for you to talk about this. He's saying for serious smokers or people that actually want a potent product, he says it's really sad to have to spend eighteen to forty dollars on something like Kiva when uh, he would love to see a leading edible brand try to bring the cost down and making things more potent. Um, but I think it's fair to try to understand what you as a leading brand have to deal with in the current climate like can you give a little bit more insight like yeah i can't just drop like i can ship you a t-shirt and it costs me a couple dollars u.s postal you're gonna have to i don't even know what you have to spend cost wise but it's not two dollars it could cost you ten dollars to deliver a bar of chocolate when you factor in the armed security you have to get the routes um, the fact the, that you can't use postal service, the fact you can't run you can't a square use car, potentially trucking or distribution services. Yeah. Those are all things that I think we're so unaware of. And I'm curious if you can kind of enlighten us on, hey, here are the things that I our company experiences that Hershey's does not experience. Mm-hmm. And here's why there's a cost. Difference. Oh, yeah. They mentioned Hershey. Sorry, I read that question wrong. But they also mentioned like, well, I can go get a Hershey bar, right? Like why? Obviously, there's weed in your And there's so. going to be a difference. And so I don't want to take that personal situation to the nth degree. But I think the the, the question is still the same. What, 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 what affects pricing that Hershey's doesn't doesn't care about? Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, run it. <laughs> oh, oh, so here we I'm go. I'm ready. Okay. So um, it's funny that you mentioned Hershey's because we actually were getting that from our team as well, from the internal Kiva team. Like, hey, if a chocolate bar costs $20 and a Hershey's bar costs a dollar, shouldn't our salaries be 20 times <laughs> a Hershey bar oh, employee's wow. salary? And so we actually used Hershey's as an example at a company meeting and we broke it down to show what price, what what cost of goods Hershey's has 
what cost of distribution, what kind of taxes they have in order to um, get their products to the consumer. And so um, as a brand, our nirvana is to have as many people have access to our products as possible, right? And with that comes a reasonable price. So that's always like where you want to get to, right? Is let's, let's, bring it, let's be inclusive, let's bring as many people into the fold as we can. So we're always tr- aiming for that direction. Um, this year, different from last year and different from Hershey's, is there are the most extreme requirements that we have as a brand. Packaging, for example, think of your Hershey's bar. It has a very nice, lightweight little um, wrapper around it. You just break that open and there's your Hershey bar. Yeah, if you sneeze, it comes off. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, A Kiva bar has that type of um, that first wrapper. That's like layer one, but ours is about two to three times the, um, the weight of that Hershey's bar. So it's harder to get into. Then we put it into this, um, bit of a mind trick contraption. It's like a finger trap. And I did this last night and I, I was really confused because the first time I had seen it and it was just, and it was easy once you read the instructions, but I was just like flipping it around like, oh, yeah. I press two fingers there, press another finger and slide this out. Yeah. Like a speakeasy. Yes. <laughs> it totally. Is. It's like a password. Exactly. So um, we don't like frustrating our consumers. That's not our first choice. Um, we would, uh, we, you know, we want to make the consumer experience with our products amazing. And so regulation requires us to put our products into a child-resistant box. That box has increased in price from last year to this year by 5x. So wow. what you used to pay a few cents for, now you pay five times more this year, right? So there's a big cost that Hershey's also doesn't have to contend with. Um, the next one is testing. So the state requires that we test absolutely every batch for um, food safety and potency to make sure that it meets state standards and also what we put on our label, which is amazing. Like Kiva, we've always tested. We don't want to under promise or over promise on what our products contain we want them to be safe so of course we want to make sure we're doing that um but the the way that the state has testing happening right now it's extremely expensive and we also have to do it twice won't get into all the details of that because it's pretty technical but um we end up all manufacturers pretty much end up having to test their products twice so you're paying thousands of dollars per batch in testing And then remember, our market is small, and our we're only serving the state of California. Hershey's is serving the country or yeah. the world, so they have equipment that you know is probably a hundred times the size of what we have. And with that, you get the economies of scale. So testing and scale is another big part of the process. We're all done by hand, right? So you have to pay the employees to pour every single bar individually. Um, The last one and the most, I think, impactful is um, taxes. Mm. And because cannabis is a little bit fringe and we still have a stigma attached to us, both the user and the business, everybody has their hands in our pocket. So the state has a pretty... um, a pretty high excise tax, which ends up being 15% to the end consumer. That's double the amount of our sales tax, right? Damn, yeah. That's 
pretty serious pretty serious more than any gas tax that you've experienced and we have the most gas tax in the nation these a 50 percent tax that's serious and you don't see that in your price because it's an excise tax and not a sales tax so sales tax you have to itemize that out on your sales receipt excise tax often gets embedded into the price of the product in fact the distributor is responsible for collecting the tax so when our um when our dispensaries buy from Kiva, excise tax is one of the line items on their on their invoice, invoice, basically. But what some retailers do is they bury that excise tax into the price of a Kiva bar. So, so it looks they say, like oh. you picked that price. So it looks like I picked that price. And then the retailer will often um, mark up on the excise tax as well. That's just excise tax. Then we have a local tax. So Oakland charges um, five and ten percent on medical, five five percent on medical, ten percent on recreational. And that's not just at the store. That's also on the operators, the supply chain. So get this: there's three of us in this room. You're cultivator. You're manufacturer. I'm retail. Okay, so you have to charge 10% on your cultivated product, right? So call it a dollar plus 10%. Then it goes to you. You have to charge a dollar plus 10% on what he, plus 10%, your, ten, your 10% tax. Mm. Then you send it over to me. I'm the retailer. I have 10% tax on your 10% and your 10%. So our taxes are getting marked up and marked up all throughout the supply chain. And it's because everybody, you know, Cannabis isn't like, there's not a lot of advocacy for it. There's not a lot of like representation for it yet, although there's a ton of great trade groups that are attacking the issues, but we don't have a ton of respect. People are kind of like, eh, take it or leave it. It's a cannabis industry. So if you want to operate here, you're going to pay the 10% tax. If you want to buy a cannabis product, you're going to pay the tax. Like if you don't want to, then don't buy the products. Everybody's getting greased on the enti- on the entire process. So yes. This is the nightmare that a lot of my heavy cannabis smoking consuming friends many years ago before it went to the ballot were like do not vote to legalize like you don't know how expensive everything you once consumed is going to be and i was like oh, whatever 10 percent more like I, I didn't know what to expect i was just like if it's safer for me it is whatever so this is the price currently and that's why like yeah. that's and it's more like 40 percent that you're paying. So like our, so our bars went, um, they stayed the same price. Actually, they went up by like a dollar or two, maybe like, yeah, two to $4 to the end consumer from last year to this year. And, um, the potency went down from 180 to a hundred. So we increased the price to our consumer and we had to lower the potency. Mm. And so the, you're like people like the listener are, you know, up in arms because they are now getting the short end of the stick. And then what's worse for the industry as a whole is um, we all still have the same channels that we used last year to get cannabis if we weren't shopping in stores. So everybody's got a guy, right? It would literally take me like three minutes to get cannabis for everybody in this office if we wanted to. I mean, it would just, it's so easy to get to. There's these long rooted channels in California of ways to get cannabis outside the system. That's how it's been operating for 20 something years. So we we're trying to undercut those channels, but we've got all these crazy taxes at the same time. So people will just go around the regulated system and the licensed system and they'll just buy from their guy. So it's, it's a problem. Is Can medical, uh, so that there's the hundred milligram, potency issue 
uh, is that the same for medical or is that different? So for medical, um, you can have higher potencies on products that are not edibles. So the state has, and with that, to me, that means that the state feels like um, edibles are not a true medical product. That if you have a chronic medical condition and you're looking for high amounts of cannabis, you'll just go to tinctures or you'll go to pills or concentrates. But um, that, I don't particularly agree with that assessment. Um, I think edibles can be used for both markets, but there are higher potency products that are not traditional edibles. And going back to pricing real quick, do you in traditional consumer packaged goods the brand has an MSRP, right? And they work hard to maintain their retailer relationships so that the price of your Cheez-Its isn't eight dollars, even if a retailer feels like it can charge eight dollars because you know that would kill your brand sitting right next to whatever Cheez It knockoff brand. That's a two dollars and so you're going to get slammed right how much can you do that with because i'm assuming you work with over 550 different dispensaries some of them have same ownership some of them are a chain you know i'm like bloom or MedMen that have multiple locations but is it really hard to communicate, hey, we think this is what the price range should be when a dispensary can just say, oh, thanks for your wholesale pricing. We have tons of demand for this. So this is going to be a $50 bar no matter what. Yeah, that that happens all the time. So, yeah, we have very little control over the retailer. Like we can get in there and we can suggest it all day long. Sure. Um, but they absolutely have the old the the last say so um so yeah you see certain retail stores like if they have a really prime um location then they'll charge almost you know whatever they want you can you know within reason i guess but they they hold those keys they can they can do whatever they want in terms of end consumer pricing we have very little ability to influence them i also stepped into three dispensaries yesterday First one was closed. Second one didn't have your product. Third one had your product. And there's no pricing anywhere. and uh, and Or at least that I've... Again, there might be. But I thought that was really interesting because unless I asked a person specifically to give me that price, I didn't really know until I was purchasing it. And so I have these like rough figures in my head of things that I bought a month ago you don't know if it's expensive or not i have no idea i have no idea like i i feel that way when i walk into dispensary still to this day and i'm just like i'm like yo can i get that pre-roll and they're like yeah it'll be like 30 bucks it's like yeah i don't know yeah i don't don't, look stupid (laughs) and then i go home and uh my brother's like you paid how much for like you idiot and so like there's still there's still an economy of people trying to understand what pricing even makes sense um, and that goes into everything, like the branding of it. And you guys just have to fluctuate. It's not like you're like, I'm going to be the budget, high quality chocolate. Like it's such, that's such like a hard thing when you're mentioning all the layers that it takes to get to your consumer. You can't go direct to consumer yet. Um, one of the listeners asked, is Kiva spending it all towards like federal lobbying for legalization? I know you're, uh, at least involved in like, high level discussions of a lot of this stuff so i feel like you would you would have some stuff about that and are you worried about any future restrictions 
through health and other government departments? Obviously you are, but yeah. Yeah. Great question. So, um, we, so I, um, I sit as the, or I act as the president of the board of the CCIA, which is one of the, um, it's the largest trade group in the state. Um, and then we're also founding members of another trade group, CCMA, um, California Cannabis Manufacturers Association. So I love to be like plugged in what's going on with the regulations. Those are both California based. So on the federal side, we're starting to decide like where, where, how do we play in that world? Um, because it's extremely important to weigh in, right? Like you're dealing with legislators and regulators that are like, I haven't smoked weed ever. And you're like, ever? How do you know how to regulate? Like, how will you know anything about how to regulate the market if you have zero experience with our products, right? It's the same guys who were questioning the CEO of Google why their, their search results are bad. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's crazy, right? The guy regulating search, regulating the internet, Doesn't is asking about personal bad history results, not about how it works, not about the format. And I think that's got to be a similar crazy question is how do we enter that pond if there's going to be a stigma attached to even a hearing to talk about it, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it's super important for us to to weigh in um, federally. So we're still figuring out um, Kiva itself is figuring out how to play in that space. But CCIA, for example, um, has federal representation now. So we have our our ear to the ground and we're we're trying to understand how um, how the direction that policy is heading and then weigh in is you, you have to have to make your voice heard and it's totally up to you to present materials, to present high quality education. Like you get out your like white paper skills and you make a graph or what, you know, whatever it is to prove your point. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's like every little bit counts. It's, it's kind of amazing how that process works, but is I know there, yeah, sorry, is there a renewed sense of energy because of the Canadian legalization and, and uh, are there, or is that are people you? more tepid because of the Canadian legalization or are they using that as momentum and saying now's the time look at Canada let's do this I think there's a there's a now's the time like a call to action um I think the US doesn't like to be uh like overcome by Canada so there's a little <laughs> ego there um and I think the opportunity is huge and so, yeah, as Canada has legalization um, and as like every state in the U.S. is starting to come up with their new programs and the farm bill is about to be signed, hopefully, um, there's just like there's so much energy and um, excitement around cannabis right now. Like you can you can feel it. Is it Mark? I know we're butting up on time, but I. Is I it, got so much left. Let's keep I, it rolling. I know. Keep it rolling. Um, is cannabis marketing itself right now, or do you have to? Because you have a great marketing team. What are you guys doing? Like, do you run billboards? Can you advertise on Instagram? Like, what are some challenges people aren't thinking of, or is it just are people just? Is it selling itself because cannabis is so hot? Yeah, um, it's not selling itself. I wish it was, but it's yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, I want to give you guys more credit. Let's hear it. Yeah, thank you. Um, and we do have an amazing marketing team. We've just recently brought on a few new folks, but we have um, 
just they're the the new team is amazing the existing team is amazing and um the passion around communicating cannabis and educating on cannabis is like it's it's so fun it's so fun to talk about people are really interested nobody knows anything so like any materials that you put out in the world um educating people on cannabis just get like sucked up in a second so um what we used to do in the old world was um free sampling at the dispensaries so we had these like um little pouches we'd put a chunk of chocolate in there and for every person that walked in the store if you came by our booth and let us educate you on cannabis for five seconds we'd give you a little free sample right you put that in your pocket and you walk out or you eat it right there sometimes and then you know it gives you it's like our way of extending an olive branch like maybe you have haven't had the best experience with edibles in the past. Maybe you've never tried them. Uh, maybe somebody in your family has never tried them. So here's a little something on us to get you to bridge that gap. Um, but with new regulations in 2018, we can't give anything away for free. Um, so we can't, those programs have been all undone and unwound. Um, but so what we what we're able to do still is a lot of in-store education because you can put a billboard up, but until there's more access. Um, a billboard is kind of an expensive way to reach consumers because unless they can pull off the freeway and pop right into a store, um, then a billboard it doesn't really give them a chance to doesn't it doesn't turn your marketing dollars into a purchase mm. unless there's a store close by, right? So we are looking at slightly more targeted ways of reaching consumers. Not that billboards are like a bad strategy for some businesses and some types. Sure. Just as Kiva, we've chosen like we're exploring um, doing cool new events. So one event we did over the holidays was a cookie decorating party. Oh. So we um, we uh, had to buy our own chocolate at retail to be compliant with the laws and then um, stir that up over like a a warm pot melt that down we invited I mean like 20 or 25 people and they did cookie decorating with Kiva chocolate on like you know products like like store-bought products and it was super fun so it makes you think outside the box with your marketing and do like fun new interesting things so there are experienced based things that that that's how you're reaching your consumer is that like a majority of your marketing budget if you will is it going towards experience because of uh the self-imposed regulations of instagram facebook social media what other cookie companies would do is like you know what let's just run targeted ads at these people but you can't do that just yet yeah you can do some targeted ads um like facebook is not one of those instagram is not one of those channels where you can advertise cannabis um and those are their own policies like Mm -hmm. they don't advertise um controlled substances yeah federally legal substances so um that's out of the question but there are some other services that will allow you to do that you could do like some banner ads and stuff like that Mm. um but yeah it's a little like i think that you can target that down to somebody you can get it real specific um but those are just at like i don't click on those ads so not everybody is that that may work for some things for some channels but um yeah we like to do we like to have fun that's i see people on ig posting kiva though it's not i'm sure you guys aren't like directly compensating for that is it are those through as a result of like experiences are people just rabid fans and they're like i just gotta shout these guys yeah so you can do influencer programs you which can. we subscribe to. Yeah. How you do just, you do that? Um, I'm curious. This is good info. Yeah. Um, that was a question. I'm in this uh, social media group on Facebook of just people 
brand managers from other brands. And so that was one of their questions was just like, they've seen influencer programs. So I'm glad you brought that up. Like how, how does that work? Yeah. So influencer marketing is like the new advertising right. and not just for cannabis, but for all companies. Sure. So, um, and, uh, uh, so like the posts will say, um, you know, try this Kiva bar. Um, like I got this from Kiva and these are the experiences that I'm having. So you can set up marketing programs like that to reach key influencers, which, then you get somebody's like actual perspective on the product, like they tried it and they felt this or they felt that. So it's just a bit more genuine and it's it's more fun. It's and that's kind of the way people are looking for 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 content. Is that experience and information? What's getting like? Is that info relayed on a Facebook or Instagram from that influencer, or are they like sharing that elsewhere? Um, they are sharing that on on Instagram. I would say that's the primary, primary. channel that we're using. Gotcha. Yeah, because. I think for the for the most part, you've talked really positively about the marketing that you do when other people would look at your situation, I can't do widespread social targeting ads. I can't do limited amount of branded content and distribution as a problem and as an added cost because they're you have to create these events in very specific places. You can potentially do a billboard, but you also have advertising regulations potentially per city, which we talked about in our Bloom podcast. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, is that is marketing because of how targeted you almost have to be? Also, just uh, you can't reach economies of scale with the advertising so it it costs more to do the advertising that you're doing because it's hard for me to look at the industry knowing that regulations might be different in the bay area than it is the newly established advertising guidelines the five-page pdf from the los angeles it's just gotta be deflated whatever the cannabis department is called out there is like man just keeping up with the legal minutiae of the advertising side just feels like a headache yeah um we work with a really awesome pr company and so um we try to get a lot of like cool opportunities around that and Mm -hmm. so um and like I said before, people want to hear and talk about cannabis. Yeah. So I'm not to underplay or downplay the work that our PR company does, but it's fun. Yeah. Like people want people are to, into it. people are into it. So they want to talk about it. They like, if you're the magazine that has a cannabis company featured in it, like that could bring more people to your magazine. So um, I think the two are, are both boosting each other at the same time. In regards to, the chocolate bar that's not yours on the shelf that's next to yours or the mints or how do you view competition because in when i was working in before food beast when i was working in restaurant marketing and there was a restaurant row in downtown long beach and theoretically they're all in competition with each other because uh you know each restaurant wants you to spend your money with them, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's this aggregate view of, I need that restaurant to stay open so this main street continues to thrive as a main street and I'm not the only restaurant on an island. So 
there's rising tide tide floats all ships right and so do you feel that way about cannabis and edible products right now um or does that going to change over the next couple of years because kiva's a big kiva's the bigger dog right i mean how do you approach like competition in that way um in the industry right now we love competition um because it like you said the the rising tide lifts all boats and we're in a we're still in a time where people don't necessarily trust cannabis products so if there's not just one chocolate bar but two three four or five there's gummies mints gum you name it then when the consumer walks in the store they see something for them and that's great, right? That brings more trust to not just the edibles category, but the whole cannabis industry. So yeah, the the it's this is like the first time we've really seen new competitors come into the space and they're sophisticated. So they have a beautiful brand, they're marketing, they're educating, they're following the rules, they're conducting themselves professionally. And that is like so cool because it again everybody wins when when we're when we're all conducting ourselves professionally and, and gaining consumer trust. Talk about the the sub brands you have um, with Petra and Camino. What? Why isn't isn't it Kiva gummies and why isn't it Kiva mints? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm curious about why that decision was made. And and to me, I think it's really smart. But I, I'm really curious about what your guys' thought process was um, in creating those sub brands and and the power of those sub brands. Yeah. So um, early on, we made the decision when we came out with our terabytes to. Um, give them a new name, a new look, a new feel, a new sub-brand. And that was primarily to potentially appeal to a new set of people. Mm -hmm. So we had the Kiva Bar. We had gotten a lot of feedback that um, that was a very female-focused product. And still today, there's primarily uh, men are shopping in the stores. So we wanted to come out with something that was a little more bold, a little more masculine, a little bit more geared to that group. Um, And also with a kind of like a tech-centric feel to it. And so um, that's how the Terra brand was launched. Then as we come out with a new product line, if it does something different for the consumer, if it has a new value proposition, you kind of want to put that in a different part of your mind. Like, oh, this is different. This is for this type of thing, like the mints. The mints are super portable. This is what I put in my purse and, um, you know, I eat at work or whatever the ca- whatever the case is. So um, every time we come out with a new value proposition, we've given that a new brand. There are pros and cons to that. So like, um, like you said, when you bought the blueberries and the mints, you didn't originally know that they are from Kiva. So that's something that we have, um, we have to overcome. We have to kind of fix a little bit or tweak a little bit because you don't get that same um, brand recognition that you get from if you put Kiva on everything. But we, we just try to help consumers kind of organize it in their minds and appeal to a new person that maybe we may have missed on one of our product categories. What what can people look forward to 
in 2019 can you like give us anything like what what's what's popping because you launched a bunch of exclusive flavors into the end of the holidays which are on our site but like what what can we look forward to what are some challenges you're gonna overcome hit it yeah um so glad you asked because um we have with with 2018 like i mentioned we brought in a new marketing team that we've never had um, before we have a new um, head of sales, a new head of operations. So we've really like bolstered the management team this year, like never before. Um, and your management team, like they're they're your right and left hand, right? I mean, they do. They're an integral part of any type of um, expansion or innovation or improvement in the company. And so um, next year we have like so many cool new things that we're uh, that we're preparing. So we've got some new flavors coming out on a few of our lines. We're trying out um, some other experimental kind of things. I'm being super vague. Oh, man. Give, us, give us one thing that's going to make the rest of the team super mad at you. Oh my God. I don't think I can. Oh no. Cause all the competitors are going to come out. Oh, I know. Yeah. Then it's, then the race is on. Right. Um, but we have a, a product innovation pipeline that's kind of like pent up right? Because mm-hmm. we haven't had these team members and we love to come up with new cool stuff. Like that is at our core. The blueberries, the espresso beans, those all came because we love to make cool stuff. So we have a, a list of cool new things that we want to come out with that we've been working towards. And now we have people to make it happen. So I think there's going to be a ton of new cool things coming out next year that are like really exciting well and your kiva is the first brand with the peppermint bark as well as the uh i believe it was a christmas punch gummy yeah i had never seen seasonal limited time items from an edible brand so those are tactics that i'm used to seeing when the kroger switches into its holiday section and has all of your favorite candy products package good products for holiday so is that is the seasonality like are we getting to a point where you can make limited time items and edibles and kind of grasp onto a pop culture moment or a season and then that's the shelf life of that product until it comes back next year because that feels new to me is that new to the industry it's it it is fairly new to the industry um in kiva's history we we launched the peppermint bark probably like five years ago and then i think we did two seasons in retail with the bark and then um we took a couple years of a break because it's hard to execute on those Mm. and they can be really expensive and take a ton of work it's like launching a whole new line but you only have it in market for a month and then you retire it so it it's uh it, it can be really um taxing and stressful on the operations side of things but yeah seasonal stuff is super fun um it's great for brand building like our um so our holiday punch camino gummies and the camino line aims to provide a different effect and tie to a california landscape and so the um the holiday punches christmas morning is the effect so it's like super exciting it's that like anticipation and like exhilaration you get from like you know, when you're five years old and you're about to open presents on Christmas morning. So we can do fun little in and outs like that um, now that we have the team and we have the consumer base that's interested in purchasing for the holidays just like we already are. 
that's cool because you can keep creating these like news moments. It's not like you just have just the one item. Yeah. Promise me you will let Food Beast unveil one of your next items. Ooh. Okay. Because <laughs> if you're not going to give me one right now, I appreciate your story and everything. See, yeah. Okay. But. So there's the promise that's going to make management mad. So yes. There you go. I'm glad we found a middle ground. Right. That's a happy medium. It's a good I'm, I'm glad to sit in We're between you two, here. look you both in the eye, and say we did it. Uh, has has Kiva uh, did Kiva at any point? need funding for production need investors and how much how important is it to you to kind of keep a quote-unquote like independent small business mindset and or how important is it to potential tackle tackle new states legalization new markets that new production facilities things that are capital intensive i'm curious about where you kind of sit as a co-founder and what the direction for the business is. Cause I think with context, when we talk to, for example, Nui, the, the protein cookie, keto cookie, keto company, yeah. cookie company, they're going to try to sell it as much as they can g- produce it as much as they can. High volume might they'll probably, if needed, they'll take capital. They'll do everything that they can to get widely distributed in grocery stores across America. How, how much does that align or not align with the vision that you have at Kiva? Yeah, so uh, we were bootstrapped all up until this year, which we were like super proud of and like gave us a really cool story. And um, but like. Listen, that's a different world. (laughs) (laughs) That was last year. And this year, there's just like a wall of money coming at us. So if we want to continue to tell our story, we have to spend money on marketing, for example. If we want to launch all these cool new seasonal things that are in and out, then we have to put the money behind that to actually execute and make that happen. So we did bring on investment this year. Um, which has been amazing. Actually, we were, you know, always, always a little bit nervous, but, um, but it's been awesome because we spent a really long time choosing a great partner that brings us more than just dollars, but, but business smarts as well behind it. So we, we've been thankful to do that. And you, and that's the environment now that we live in is everybody is spending, spending, and the business is turning into a real, it's, it's a real business now. Yeah. It's not just this back, you know, backyard or back alley, back alley, home kitchen, homegrown kind of thing. Like you have to raise, you have to have enough resources that you can remain competitive and thus achieve your goals, right? So you have to remain nimble and adapt to the marketplace or you'll just get, you know, you'll, you'll get overlooked. Well, especially as the big companies start coming in, right? Because I mean, the announcement of Constellation Brands spending $4 billion in investment towards, I believe it was Canadian R&D and, and the cannabis market of across the pond, or not across the pond, above the border. But I mean, they were just waiting for legalization, right, to be able to do that. And I, I would imagine every time a state passes legalization, there's as many corporate interests as possible trying to get in on it whenever possible. So how much did that kind of wager into your decision-making knowing that do you have to try to achieve scale of some kind before 
I don't know, Walmart says, yeah, we're going to get into cannabis and we're going to do that. And to be able to compete on, you know, scale of a different corporate degree. Yeah, I think um, I think what Walmart is going to look for, what Constellation Brands is going to look for when they make their moves in the space is brand like you can set up a manufacturing facility you can distribution's a little bit harder but even that's not impossible like money can buy those things right away but um a brand is something that's built over time so i think you don't have to be really like there isn't a there isn't a like perfect formula for for brand and brand recognition but i think that's what those companies are going to come in looking for rather than start all brands from scratch and have to build that momentum in the space they'll look around for the brands that have that and they'll they'll seek to acquire them you mentioned how distribution was a hard maybe a short-term obstacle to overcome and then you've now developed these hundreds of dispensary relationships are there brands knocking on your door and say hey distribute this we don't compete with you we do something different you know i don't know if you're going to go into this product line but can you take us with you to whenever you're selling your seasonal items because we've got a seasonal item i've heard about that buggy mentality in like small smaller cannabis brands that like shit you're already in these stores we sell a popcorn you do a you do a chocolate bar like we're if if we get in there it doesn't hurt us have you guys done any of that yeah so our distribution company also um does distribution for others as well wow and so um and the way we look at it is we need them as much as they need us right because at the end of the day your buyer that works the dispensary they only have eight hours in a day and they don't they want to carry a hundred brands, but they don't have time to meet a hundred people every week sure. to get deliveries. Yeah. So when you buddy up together um, in, in a distribution portfolio, then it adds value to everyone. It, 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 it's a way of treating your buyer with respect, right? Like here's all the cool stuff that you need to have on your shelf, right? We've got you covered from vape pens to edibles and everything in between. So yeah, we get brands coming to us, but we also go to brands um, in an effort to build the best portfolio for our buyers. How exciting is that side of the business? Because that's a completely different model. I mean, when you look at when you look at Southern spirits and wine, like their whole model isn't based on owning spirit brands that's mostly owned by Diageo anyway. Their their model is we control this region and that's our money maker. Is that something that you guys are just as excited about on the distro front as you are the product front? Because there seems that seems to be like endless opportunity in both directions. It's distribution is super fun. Um, I didn't even know what distribution was when we got into the industry, but um, it's turning out to be like one of my favorite parts because you get to take a small brand, which I can relate to, right? We're still, we're still pretty small. Um, and you can grow, you can grow them and develop them and foster them and watch them win. And if they have hurdles, you can, you know, discuss how to, you could strategize about how to overcome those. Um, 
And all the while, you're helping out your buyer who a lot of these like buyers I've known for years because I opened their account originally. So it's like all while you're helping out your buddies. So um, yeah, that part of the business is super fun. And it is a lot like alcohol. Um, In fact, we brought on somebody earlier this year from Stone Distributing and they have a really cool, they have a model just like what we're trying to do, right? They manufacture their own beer then they do their own distribution and distribution for others. Yeah. So a lot of companies are looking out to find parallels in other industries to see how they've done it. And craft beer is a is a good model. Damn. Oh my gosh. Mm. This conversation was amazing. I think it needs a part two soon too. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I still got eight questions. I know we got to wrap. Yeah. Please, fo- please follow us or actually where can people follow more about Kiva and learn more about the new announcements you guys have coming up? Yeah. Um, so on our Instagram page at made by Kiva, um, on our Facebook page, Kiva Confections, um, we do an email blast. So our website, kivaconfections.com, you can sign up for our email blast. Um, yeah, those would be great places to, to find more. And try the peppermint bark while you can yeah. and then stocked. I got the last two where I was, so. I like the habanero gummies. The pineapple habanero gummies are a must. It took me forever to open the package, but Sorry I had to walk upstairs that. and ask my brother again. I was like, yo, bro, am I dumb right now? <laughs> no, but, you're uh, human. <laughs> but you're doing good. You're doing good. It's doing its job. It's keeping idiots out of the package. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you for uh, literally making me high. Like, Multiple times a week. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for your loyalty. And thanks to all the Kiva fans out there listening to us and supporting us and helping us move those millions of bars. It's like just, I mean, I can't, it's like unfathomably awesome. It's so cool. So I really appreciate the opportunity with you guys too. It's awesome. And thank you everyone for listening at home. Appreciate you guys' questions. We're going to keep lathering those questions into our future episodes. So appreciate those. Hope we got the answers you were looking for. Um, follow the ketchup on Instagram. Yeah, at Food Beast Ketchup. Follow uh, at Book of Eli. Drop us. Uh, just DM it on the Food Beast Ketchup, and we can ask your questions for next week. Um, and thank you guys for leaving the reviews on the iTunes Store. Really appreciate that. We saw a few couple new ones. Couple new ones. Thank you for flattering us for asking very simple questions. <laughs> uh, hey, but the five stars work, so uh, we'll take that. We'll take that. Thank you guys again for listening. Thank you, Chrissy, for coming in. Appreciate you. Thank you. Till next time. Till next time. time. Bye, guys.